Welcome to the 437th of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today, I welcome Ryan Hagen, the co-director of the New York City COVID-19 Oral History, Memory and Narrative Archive Project, Back to COVID Calls. Just a reminder, you can catch COVID Calls live. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch, and you can always catch COVID Calls live on Twitter. You can also hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at USO Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please do help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics. And as always, please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest, but please don't wait too long. March 16th will be the last of the regularly scheduled COVID calls. So please do get your suggestions to me now. As of today, February 27th, 2022, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center, there are 948,000 382 lives lost to COVID-19 in the United States. I've been reading an obituary or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic. I'd like to continue that now. This is the life story of Lisa Berhannon, written by Jasmine Aguilera. This appeared in Time Magazine as part of a special feature they did on lives lost to COVID in 2020. Even from her hospital bed after contracting the coronavirus, Lisa Burhannon continued to host Zoom meetings and do the hard work that benefited some of the most vulnerable members of her Harrisburg, Pennsylvania community. Burhannon dedicated her life to mentoring young women, helping the recently incarcerated transition back to life on the outside, and supporting victims of violence among many other passionate causes. She served as a Harrisburg chapter coordinator for Crime Survivors for Safety and Justice, CSSJ, an organization dedicated to helping victims of violence through their healing process and was involved with other local and national organizations that helped people in need, including Breaking the Chains and Mothers in Charge. Hannon died of COVID-19 on June 11, 2020. She was 50. Already, there's been a huge void for our work in Pennsylvania, says Aswad Thomas, CSSJ's managing director. I had a moment yesterday where I couldn't call Lisa, and I struggled a little bit. It's going to be challenging moving forward without Lisa's presence. CSSJ is now designing an annual award in Burhannon's name. Again, this piece came from summer of 2020. Kevin Dolphin, founder of Breaking the Chains, a nonprofit that runs prevention programs to keep people out of prison, knew Burhannon for 40 years. He describes her as selfless, outgoing, endearingly rough around the edges, and one who took a tough love approach to those she pushed to better themselves. People close to her say she survived domestic violence and lost one of her own children to gun violence. Lisa became a first responder in a way, says Dolphin, who adds that together they would respond to incidents of violence in their neighborhood to comfort family members. She gave her heart to those who were crime victims, he said. Lisa is the definition of a survivor, says Thomas, the definition of a leader in the community and dedicated to making change. The life of Lisa Berhannon has appeared in Time Magazine in the summer of 2020. She lost her life to COVID-19. Okay, I'd like to turn to my conversation for today, and it's really wonderful to welcome my guest, Ryan Hagen, back to COVID Calls. Let me introduce him to you. Ryan Hagen is a lecturer in the Department of Sociology at Columbia University. He studies risk and the social construction of knowledge, focusing on how people and institutions anticipate future dangers. He's co-director of the New York City COVID-19 Oral History, Memory, and Narrative Archive Project, 
at Columbia, which since April of 2020 has conducted hundreds of interviews with New Yorkers tracing their evolving experiences of the pandemic. And he's been busy writing many other things as well, which I'm going to ask him about in our conversation. Ryan Hagen, welcome back to COVID Calls. Thank you so much for having me, Scott. It's really a pleasure to be here. So let me start the way I generally do, find out where you're calling from and get an update on the pandemic there. I'm calling from New Haven, Connecticut. Uh, we're the last Metro North stop uh, on the commuter train out of New York City, um, which is how I get into Columbia now that we are back in person uh, after a long time remote. Um, the pandemic has been difficult in New Haven. Uh, we were hit really hard by the Omicron wave. Um, and in fact, a lot of the people in my own social network here in town uh, who had been very careful and very lucky and were able to avoid uh, COVID up until this wave, uh, it got a lot of us. Um, and there was this sort of sense of um, everyone suddenly uh, contracting this virus at the same time. Um, although, um, you know, the case numbers have been falling for some time, and now we're back to where we were before the Delta wave, actually, in terms of case counts, something in the neighborhood of 50 cases diagnosed a day. Um, and things are opening up. I went to go see a concert last week. Like I felt safe and comfortable doing that in a crowd that was uh, had to show proof of vaccination and we're all wearing masks during the show. Um, so there's a sense of of the of a lull in the pandemic for now from here and in New York City, too. I wanted to ask you about that. Something you said there really struck me that um People who have been very cautious throughout the entire pandemic followed the rules or even gone better than the rules. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm describing what we're looking at here in South Korea right now, too. The Omicron wave has been a real chastisement. It's been a real, um, it's been a real sobering moment um, for, because people are getting sick and mm-hmm. even ones who've done their very, very best. And I wonder how you sort of culturally how you how people in your circle have talked about that because you know there's a a tendency to think that people once something becomes too difficult in when it comes to covid they sort of just there's an acceptance right they say okay well this is just the way it is and so we're all going to get it now this sort of like even those who didn't want to participate in herd immunity are going to have to do it but I see, I've seen a lot of dissonance, a lot of friction there, because also here, people who've been very careful, and it has entered their circle, and that includes me, have tried to double down and, and really you know, stick to the best possible practices that we could. So I'm curious how you saw it. I mean, once enough people get it, even those who are cautious, what's their attitude been? Well, it's not quite giving up. But there was a sort of sense of fatalism at a certain point that suddenly everyone seemed to have gotten sick in the span of a week or two, a lot of them because uh, the waves seemed to hit before they realized it and before they could adjust. And there was the sense that not that it was too hard to continue being careful and taking precautions, but that in a sense, it was like, uh, you know, everything was slipping through your fingers, no matter where you tried to block off entry of the pathogen into your life, it would somehow get there anyway. Mm. Um, and there, we had, I had a couple of conversations with friends and, and people that I knew who just said at a certain point they had it, it was bad, but not that bad. And they were in a sense relieved that it had finally happened to them. Um, mm. And, you know, for, for a week after they got better, you know, a couple of people that I knew went out to go eat indoors at a restaurant for the first time uh, after they felt sure that they were no longer contagious um, because they could, they felt, you know, surely you can get infected again, but I'm not going to catch it a week after I just had COVID, which maybe was not, the, you know, yeah. the wisest idea, but a lot of people did it. There was a sense of finally it has happened. This thing that I've been dreading for a year, you know, for a year and a half, two years. And there's a, in a sense, nothing that you can do to stop it. Um, but that wasn't everybody. I mean, I think a lot of us tried the hardest that we could, um, even when it's in your household, to keep it from spreading, which people had success with. 
Yeah, thanks for talking about this part of it. And it's only just come into my consciousness in the last few weeks. It's something I hope we can um, we can try to document in some way. This you said it just right a minute ago was the um, a sense of relief almost, which is a strange thing to associate with getting COVID. Mm-hmm. But if you've been really diligent this whole time, and then to have it finally happen, that certainly would be a rational response that some people would have. Oh well, it finally I did my best, but I got it. Mm-hmm. Especially if the health consequences aren't that serious, and which you know for which is not a guarantee, which is the right, scary. Of course. Thing. So, um, yeah. So we talked last. I went back and and looked. We talked on November seventeenth, two thousand twenty, mm-hmm. and at that time um, there were in the United States two hundred forty eight thousand and one deaths reported as of that day. I wanted to ask you, I've been asking folks who really study risk closely, I wanted to ask you about the numbers. And, you know, numbers have become, for me, a a kind of a yardstick. I've read enough to feel like in the United States, there must be a a pretty vast undercount. But Mm -hmm. the numbers are still there. They still are a measure for us, at least of the passage of time in the pandemic. How are you approaching the numbers related to the, the pandemic right now, Ryan? The case numbers are very strange because the testing environment has also changed. So certainly we have an undercount no matter what under the best of conditions. But now there's a lot of people who are testing at home. There are people who uh, who aren't reporting their tests if they get a positive at home. There's a sense that maybe it's not so severe so they don't have to report it. Um, And there's also some sense, at least that I have, that the case numbers mean something different now than they did before in the Delta wave and in the earlier waves of the pandemic, where even if you see the absolute catastrophic rise of uh, of case numbers in the Omicron wave here in the US, the hospitalization and uh, death peaks were far lower um, than you would have imagined if I, if I had told you or if you had told me a year ago that we'd be seeing 200, 300,000 cases a day in the country, it would have been, you know, unbelievable. And it is unbelievable, but you would have imagined far worse outcomes uh, across the country. Um, and so that's what I've been thinking about. I mean, you know, I feel more comfortable now um, being in public with, you know, case rates comparable to where they were before the Omicron wave than I did with the same case numbers beforehand, because it seems like um, the, uh, it seems like the risk is lower and the health risks seem to be lower and the hospital system seems to be intact. So that's how I've been thinking about it. What about the mortality statistics and particularly at this point approaching uh, a million deaths, according to Johns Hopkins, um, hard to say when that, will be reached. Hard to imagine that it won't be. Mm -hmm. What kind of work is that number going to do in American society, if anything? Well, I think it depends a little bit on what's happening in the world and in the country when that milestone gets reached and when we reach it. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think this is also the case of the case we have to think about when it comes to how people were thinking about risk and the risk of COVID in particular during the Omicron wave, where it's not just an individual process of keeping yourself safe and wearing your mask and doing the things that you think are safe or not safe. But we all, I think, realized in a way that we didn't before how interconnected we all are and how much our social context matters. I think it's also the case with um, this tragic milestone that we're going to hit that it's going to happen in a historical context. Uh, and I think that the um, the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the massive destabilization that that is causing is going to change the way that people think about a million deaths from COVID. And I think the if there, we do end up in a lull between waves when that happens, I think it'll also be different. I've been paying attention to the way that the news media tries to um, talk about numbers with Ukraine. Mm-hmm. And it's pretty fascinating. And, and I've been more attentive to it since, uh, you know, since COVID 
um, especially in the last year of COVID when the, the multiple problems in the mortality statistics have been pretty obvious. But, um, you know, in one lead, a journalist will say, this is the number of people that have been killed, that the number of soldiers that have been killed, this is the number, you know, they, they tell you combatants, non-combatants. And then they were BBC last night, they were saying, but also the Kremlin will never tell you any numbers. So we have no confidence in any of those numbers. And also, so they give you the statistics and then they give you all of the hedging and it takes a while mm -hmm. to explain it all. Mm -hmm. uh, and it, it made me wish that we'd had those kinds of descriptions of the COVID numbers from the beginning. You know, mm -hmm. I have some, some concern or some, I'm at odds with myself constantly about the ways that uh, the sort of data analytics and data visualization has worked with the COVID numbers. And they have seemed very confident from the beginning. And you have to dig pretty deep to find the lack of confidence quite often. But, and I don't know if that's just that it's, uh, maybe we have more sort of cultural understanding of a fog of war and we don't think of that in terms of the fog of the pandemic, I don't know. But um, I was just surprised to see so much hesitation expressed by journalists in the moment about the numbers that they still report them but they tell you, but we're not really sure of any of these numbers. Mm -hmm. I think that may have something to do with the fact that war seems to be a template that people feel comfortable and familiar with. Um, and, um, you know, one of the things that was so fascinating when you, when you mentioned the idea of confidence uh, in uh, reporting pandemic numbers, um, there was an epidemiologist a couple of days ago on Twitter talking about how different the pandemic might have been if early on the way that the epidemiological models were presented, um, if the cone of uncertainty had gone, had widened over time as opposed to narrowed. I think that's incredibly important. The idea that we were never going to have just one wave of this pandemic and that after that first wave in April, all of the models that we were showing in, in the White House briefings as problematic as they as those briefings were in general, but you know, all of this all of the epidemiological models showed, well, there's uncertainty, there could be this many deaths, but eventually it will top it'll it'll peter out into next to nothing in, you know, whatever the time frame is. But of course the uncertainty increases with time. And if we had portrayed it that way, it would have been probably more terrifying, but certainly more realistic. Yeah, I, I think that's an interesting and important point. And it's one of those moments, again, also where they were sort of asking historians early on, like, well, what, is, what should we remember from 1918? And, yeah. and one of the things I remember John Barry saying is like, well, one of the things you should remember is it lasted until 1919 <laughs> and beyond. Yeah. That is not the message that was ready for prime time in terms of public health communication in the in the early days of the pandemic. I don't. I don't think. And that so it also brings to mind the sort of time horizon of uncertainty that people can can accept or that the experts believe people can accept. And I've been thinking about that, too, just to what you're saying. If in March of 2020, you know, the CDC had come out and said, yeah, this is a two to three year investment. So everybody, you know, do what you need to do to prepare to change your life for the next two years. Mm -hmm. I don't know if any country did that, but certainly they didn't do it in the United States. Mm -hmm. And it's hard to know what you would have done differently if you had known right. Right. that it would be a, a two to three year investment. Because, of course, it's not a, a constant. Bought a, bought a better microphone, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> Probably. Yeah. <laughs> uh, invested in a ring light instead of uh, finally <laughs> the setup that I have now. Yeah. I don't but mean I to that... make light of it, but yeah. <laughs> no, but um, it's it's certainly the case that, you know, this hasn't been a steady environment. Things sometimes get better, sometimes they get worse, and sometimes your behavior changes in ways that you wouldn't have been able to predict if you had thought about it uh, two or three years ago. So um, in a sense, it's a question of how much you can act on given the temporal horizons that you have. Let me just remind folks you're listening to COVID Calls, and I'm talking today to Ryan Hagen, who's a sociologist of risk and also the co-director of the New York City COVID-19 Oral History Memory and Narrative Archive. And we talked about that last time you were on. Ryan, you were really in the middle of it at that point, and I really wanted to get an update from you before I concluded the COVID Calls regular broadcast. So 
take us into it. And maybe for those who are not too familiar with the project, can you kind of lay out the landscape a little bit of why you started the project? And then let's talk about some of the findings. Sure. So this project, um, I started uh, with a couple of colleagues at Columbia University right after the uh, right in the middle of the first wave of lockdowns, actually, in March of 2020. So it was myself uh, with Denise Milstein, Mary Marshall Clark, Amy Staracheski, uh, and with the help of Peter Behrman at uh, the Insight Institute uh, Center, rather, at Columbia. And the idea was to we knew that a pandemic was coming, obviously, uh, because we were in the middle of the lockdowns. And we knew that we had an opportunity to get into the field and document people's experience before the world changed forever. We knew that the pandemic wasn't going to be over in a couple of weeks or months. And it turns out we were actually not pessimistic enough. We, we originally imagined that the pandemic would last about 18 months uh, and that we would um, track people's experiences over the course of 18 months and interview them multiple times uh, in, over three waves at different points to see how their experience changed because we knew that this was going to be an evolving event that would that would change over time and that's impact would change over time and so we started doing uh interviews with people over zoom um because our the university wouldn't let us go out and talk to people in in person and it that turned out to be a really fascinating way of as I'm sure, Scott, you're now deeply, deeply familiar with uh, the idea of seeing people in their homes or where they can meet you as opposed to getting together in person with them in a studio or wherever else you might meet them. And we found that extremely revealing to be able to go and see people's environments. Um, and so we have now uh, done interviews with more than 200 people um, over two waves. We have something like 350 hours worth of, of interviews. Uh, we completed the second wave just after January of 2021. So after the inauguration, um, we had a couple more interviews after that, but we've, we finished in early 2021. And we were thinking about what it would be like to do a third wave. And we got very optimistic about doing it over the summer because we thought, you know, look, it's almost over. The case counts had dropped to almost nothing in New York City. It seemed like things were reopening. And as we were getting ready to recruit people to come into a third wave um, and, and gather the resources to do it, um, the uh, the Delta wave, of course, happened. Um, right. And then, of course, Omicron after that. And um, in a sense, I'm glad that we didn't do the third wave earlier because we would have caught a bunch of people who thought that the pandemic was over and then we're going to have see their story will have been cut short, right? Because there's a whole additional sequence of time in the pandemic that they will not have experienced that we will, we would have missed. And so now we feel that um, we're just starting uh, recruitment for the third wave now. And mm -hmm. the idea is that we're going to catch people in what we imagine will be a lull after the Omicron wave, anticipating that there will be a, a you know, another future wave of variants after that. Um, but we'll come into that with our eyes open and certainly their eyes open that people were interviewing as to how they're thinking about this pandemic two years into it with the possibility that there's more to come. Let, let me just follow up on this timing issue. This is a really important one. And anybody who's been doing ethnography of any type through this pandemic, I think, has must have struggled with with this, mm -hmm. because particularly if you're trying to capture are, and this is what I want to ask you about, you know, what, what are you trying to capture in the interviews that's shaped by time? Mm -hmm. And, and I guess also, you know, so sort of connected that shaped by perception of risk, because mm -hmm. I am fascinated by what if you had shut off the project in, in the summer of 2021, it would still be extremely valuable. But as you say, it would tell you about a pandemic that's no longer a pandemic. Mm -hmm. I'm really interested in how people repair their sense of normalcy. That's one of the things that's really just gotten interesting to me um, over the course of this project. It wasn't the thing that originally drew me to this, uh, but it's something that I've been fascinated by as we've gone on. The way that people um, try to regain some sense of security and stability in the world around them. They know who they are, where they are in the world, and what is safe and what is dangerous and what they can rely on and what they can't and how they can perceive what is safe and what isn't um, and how they adapt. And so one of the big questions in the second wave was, 
um, we saw a bunch of people, we, we saw a, an, a very, you know, um, uplifting um, series of adaptations that people made in the first wave of the pandemic, that suddenly their social environment had completely disintegrated, uh, their public life had shut down, people were inside for the most part, and if they did have to go to work, it was dangerous, but it was still a routine that they had to do. And yet at the same time, it was a routine they were carrying out in a completely transformed world. And people coped with it. People um, reframed their understandings of well, what it was possible to know about the world. They um, reestablished new routines. They made new friends. They um, found new ways to stay in touch with old social connections they had. Um, they did everything that they could to kind of hunker down in the near term. And in the second wave of the interviews, we saw a lot of those coping strategies falling apart for people because it was just too much. There was too, it was too long inside. It was too, there was too little social activity outside. So people talked about how, especially in New York City, you know, the point of being in New York is to go out and see people and engage in the culture and, and um, be a part of urban life in New York City. And, you know, by even by November of 2020, um, that that still had not returned for people. It hasn't today even uh, for people. And so that layered on top of that was the anxiety around the election, which I think we have stopped thinking about a little bit, um, but it wasn't all that long ago. Uh, a lot of people that we spoke with were extremely concerned about the 2020 election and whether or not... Um, uh, Donald Trump would accept a loss if in fact he lost. Um, and those concerns turned out to look pretty prescient actually, given what happened on January 6th uh, of 2021. And so there was a lot of, the second wave was a lot grimmer and darker than the first. Um, and the third wave, I think what we're going to see is um, people hopefully having some sort of optimism towards the future and, uh, sort of reemergence into um, a world that they have adapted to. I hope. I don't know. We'll, we'll find out. I'm, I'm desperate to find out. Actually, I have so many questions about this, but the, the first one that comes to mind is how you manage the issue of the individual and the structural here, because mm -hmm. um, you know a lot of the um, the behaviors that people used as coping mechanisms early in the pandemic they were, um, well, that they will always be individual and structural, but a lot of them seem quite individual. Mm -hmm. uh, and and at, at some point, government in the United States and other countries begins to make relief payments. It begins to take really aggressive action in some places, even post lockdown. Um, you know, we start to see big institutions taking kind of dramatic steps that take the stress to a certain extent, maybe off the individual or lessen the stress on the individual a little bit. But you reporting that by the time of your second interview, people are experiencing more stress. So I'm curious about how, how, you know, if the institutional forces of life are somehow working to make things easier in the pandemic, why were people feeling more stress in your second wave of interviews? Or maybe that's the wrong way to think about it. Mm -hmm. So that's a really interesting question. And I think that there's a difference between feeling, you know, financial stress um, and feeling the stress of your basic ability to pay your rent or pay your mortgage or put food on the table. And this more sort of sense of social enemy that there's no one to talk to, that um, people were unsure about what kind of job they had or could have uh, or what their career would look like down the road or um, really questions of meaning and questions of social connection that transcend the kinds of things that government could do. I mean, you can, you can pay people to stay at home and that is certainly helpful um, and it relieves a certain kind of stress for people. But the stress that people were feeling were about not having social contact or not the kind of social contact that that can relieve stress and make you feel like your life is meaningful and moving forward um, and that you are 
like moving through time, moving through your life. People missed birthdays, they missed holidays, they missed career milestones, educational milestones. At a certain point, the inability to see the future really starts to wear on people, um, even if their immediate financial needs are are being met, which wasn't true for everybody, of course, but um, but that was even the case. What about the sort of variable um, starting points? You know, how much does it seem to matter uh, a person's, you know, economic um, um, stability coming into the pandemic or a person who suffers racial discrimination coming into the pandemic already? I'm sort of curious, um, you know, because I'm, I'm interested in sort of understanding social phenomena, but I'm also trying to be more and more attentive to the, the starting points of where people are when a disaster so-called strikes. Mm-hmm. Racial discrimination was hard for people, um, and it, was, it compounded the stress of the pandemic, especially when it interfered with people's ability to cope and take protective measures um, to keep themselves safe. And we saw that come up over and over again in our interviews, um, whether it's people being worried about being um, uh, discriminated against by the police for not wearing a mask or for wearing a mask the wrong way, or just because the police were in, engaging with people more on the streets, uh, or whether it was people worrying about not being able to wear a mask because uh, they would be subject to hate crimes uh, or or uh, kind of racist, racist violence because of the um, we're an Asian presenting person, right? Uh, which again is something that came up over and over in our interviews. Um, and so the problem of racism became a sort of double burden in the pandemic uh, that that worsened a lot of people's experience of it, not just because of the unequal public health burden of the disease itself, but also the social burden of how to keep yourself safe in a world that um, because of your identity, because of the way that, um, because of the racist structures around you, that people treat you. Um, so that was that was extremely difficult for a lot of people. Um, one of the things that was surprising to me was when you talk about starting points in terms of, of wealth and resources, is that that seemed to not matter in the ways that I expected that it would. Um, it didn't seem to matter. It wasn't that people who were financially comfortable were um, always necessarily less stressed out about the pandemic or more in control of their lives. Um, there was a lot of, um, again, people seemed to take comfort and be secure in their sense of self and their sense of the world around them when they engaged with other people, whether it was volunteering, whether it was chatting with neighbors, whether it was anything that you could do to be in touch with someone outside of your household uh, in a way that was meaningful to you and not just sitting on Zoom at work or, uh, or any of the kinds of things that people did. And so that was actually really surprising to me. And I think that that is something that is a little bit unique to the pe- conditions of the pandemic, which is that it, it disorganized society in a way that's different from uh, a hurricane or an earthquake or, or any of the other kinds of um, hazards that people encounter is that it, it, it uh, destabilized people's social connections in a sort of universal way that is unusual. I think that part of it is is so interesting because we have never we don't have any real historical analogies of that. I mean, we don't have any cases that we can that we can study where you. I mean, certainly in human history, there are events that affected everybody in the world with simultaneity, but we didn't have sociologists of risk to figure out what that meant in that moment. Maybe you know, war obviously, but even war, um, you know, it might be we call it a world war, but it might be predominantly in certain parts of the world. I mean, this has been, as, as you said, in the early months of the pandemic, 
totalizing, simultaneous. And, and so I, I'm fascinated to, to think a little bit more about that and particularly the moment at which or the month at which the individual experience of the pandemic begins to overwhelm that sense of the, of the shared experience. And I don't even know, you know, I imagine you're already trying to model, you know, or maybe people report to you when they sort of feel that that comes about. Uh, you know, maybe it's the time when certain states in the United States start to lift orders, you know, Florida and Texas come out very aggressively and say pandemic is over. No matter what you tell their governors, they tell you the pandemic is over by June of 2020. I don't know, but I feel like there's a breaking point there somewhere where there must be a, a sort of social shift between solidarity and then in back into sort of individualism. Hmm. I honestly think a big factor of this is the way that we were able to connect and work through technology at mm -hmm. home. Um, and it, and that there's a double effect. So on the one hand, you know, it's the case that people are isolated at home while still being able to work and still having social contact and still having social obligations. You still have to show up to meetings in the office. You still have to, um, do things. Um, and that we've, was not possible in the 1918 flu pandemic that people could, you know, universally work from home. So it has a different, it has an effect on the people who are isolated at home, but it also has an, uh, an effect on the people who aren't able to work at home because all of the rest of the people who they might come in contact with, or many of them are isolating at home. And so there's a strange bifurcation of society that I think is, is not something that we would have seen, you know, even if this pandemic had happened in the, in the 1990s or, um, or if the original SARS in the early 2000s had broken out the way that it, that it might have, I think that's a, that's one of the determining factors of how strange this experience has been for people is how we were able to stay connected even in this sort of shallow way of being on the internet. Really, I think we're having a very deep conversation, you and me, yeah. right now. I mean, over the no, internet. I know exactly what you mean, but we don't. We're not. We're not in the same space, and so we've been socialized to believe that somehow this communication is some somehow a simulation but not quite not quite the real conference after doing these COVID calls for two years I think I've finally broken through that completely but um, <laughs> but it is there and, and certainly there was a, a few months of learning for people to try mm -hmm. to figure out how to get into the sort of depth of communication that they had in in person I wanted to before we leave the the study and I, I can't wait to see the publications that come out of it um, I want to ask you about one of the sort of the standard questions in sociology of disaster which is that um, the sort of pro-social question, you know, mm -hmm. so oftentimes, you know, in a disaster, the media will run with stories of looting and violence and society run amok. And there's always, you know, people who study disasters who are there, if they can get attention to say, well, actually, the research shows us that people are pretty good at coping, they're creative, they tend to help each other. But this pandemic, the time, the sort of temporal boundaries of this thing have been all weird. Mm -hmm. It goes beyond the time frame that a lot of the traditional sort of sociology of disaster work has been done. Mm -hmm. And we've seen some dark things in this pandemic. We've seen some pretty antisocial behavior. John Moalam had a fantastic piece in the New York Times magazine a couple months ago about that, that mm -hmm. issue. And, and, and he sort of posited that, well, it's pretty perspectival, but People are acting in ways that they think is good for their community, but that we might perceive as antisocial. And that pandemic has been going on so long that we've seen people act in both ways, potentially. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you want to weigh in on this perennial question, but I'm sort of curious what you think about, you know, is the pro-social, anti-social uh, theorization going to shift as we come through COVID? So I think that it's not going to necessarily shift. I think we're we're still going to see. I think we can still expect to see pro-social behavior from people in crises and in disasters. And we saw it in our own study. We saw people reaching out to volunteer for for to help other people, to help their neighbors, to send to to distribute meals. Um, we saw people um, a huge outpouring of political activity around the Black Lives Matter protests over the summer. Um, that was clearly a part in part of a big pro-social surge of saying something terrible has happened in the world. It needs to be different. We're going to make the world a better place. And this is how we're going to do it together. Um, and I, and it's also certainly the case that the people who did engage in pro-social behavior seemed 
happier and that they were enduring the pandemic, uh, the pressures of the pandemic more easily uh, and with a kind of a lighter sense than people who were who were not doing that kind of thing. But I think that part of one thing that we identified in the second wave that gave me a little bit of pause has less to do with pro and antisocial behavior and more about sort of um, social regulation and expectations for being in touch with other people. So we kept hearing in interviews, people who had been under lockdown for months saying, well, you know, the difference is going to be now I'm not going to let people push me around anymore. I'm going to stand up for myself when I get out of my house, when I go back to the office. Uh, I'm going to live my life and not let myself be pushed around or accept things or not accept just, I'm not going to accept disappointments the way that I used to, you know, and there's a sense of at the time sitting in those interviews and thinking that's great. Like it's so empowering to see people feel this way. And I think we all kind of felt that I certainly did. Um, but then when we started seeing in the news media uh, reports of, you know, road rage incidents or people on the air uh, in the airways uh, getting into kind of violent clashes with each other or people treating service workers terribly in restaurants. That's the sort of dark side of this sense of I'm not going to let myself be pushed around anymore is a sense of having to renegotiate how, what are the limits of your public space and what are the limits of what you're going to, uh, how you're supposed to be treated by other people and how you're supposed to treat them. And I think that this sort of reemergence of people into the social world, having um, gone through this terrible crisis, uh, I think that the, the frustration and the violence that we saw and the sort of um, uh, antisocial behavior is a lot of, of people having to re acclimate themselves to being in touch with people. Um, and, and uh, after having been sitting at home, uh, a lot of us. Um, but then there's also a lot of darker stuff um, that I think it has to do with the way that people try to make the world normal. So in, in critical disaster studies, uh, as you know, Scott, you know, we critique this idea that we want to get back to normal or that we should want to get back to normal after a disaster because normal is oftentimes terrible and normal is what got us into this mess in the first place. Um, and but the more I've thought about this and the more I've looked at our interview data, the more I start thinking about the fact that maybe there really isn't a normal and that there is that people's ideas of what normal is vastly differ. The way that people try to get back to quote unquote normal differs and their measure of how they'll know whether or not they've gotten back to normal is also different. And so you can see the the pathway to a bunch of different people uh, trying to pursue a normalcy that is irre irreconcilable um, with other people around them and with with the social life that they had before. And so that's, I think, how you get to kind of conspiracy thinking, the idea that something has to make sense somehow. And conspiracy thinking gives you uh, a good way of, of finding community and not a good way, but a, a way of finding right. community and epistemic security so yeah that's a pretty fascinating set of insights ryan i have to say and, and there's one in there that really really strikes me is is the necessity seemingly that people need to continually through their life be re-socialized mm -hmm. when they, when you come out of certain social settings that you don't just go back into them and understand how to act necessarily i mean I know you're not putting together like a, a a huge theory on this yet, but maybe you are. But I mean, I think that to me is a really interesting idea and of course has implications for um, maybe some kind of standard things we've considered, like, you know, return of soldiers from war. Mm -hmm. You know, re-socialization is, is something I guess we've thought about in terms of post-traumatic stress, but I, I don't think we've ever thought of, we have, haven't been presented with a case like this before to think about it. Um, just that you need to know how to act. But, you know, anecdotally, how many times a day people tell stories like, oh, I went back to the post office or, I, <laughs> you know, I waited in a line. People have so many times on COVID calls, they've told me I waited in a line again. Uh -huh. It's become a kind of a, a thing. I was like, well, people tell me that a lot. It's interesting. Mm -hmm. and, and, and so they have to learn how to wait in a line again mm -hmm. and not get really angry about it and, and act in an antisocial way. You wouldn't think we'd have to relearn that stuff, but. 
maybe we do. And it happens relationally too. It's it's not just how do I wait in line or how do I sit in a restaurant, but but you know when do I get into a confrontation with someone? If someone cuts me off on the road, I forget how I used to act, you know, or like you, and then you're reacting against each other. It's all uh, all about the the way that we're interacting with each other, and not the sort of individual sense of of. You know, how I'm going to act in public, but how are we all acting together that I think we all have to learn together or to relearn again. Let me just remind folks you're listening to COVID calls. I'm talking to Ryan Hagen today. I've lost track of time, which I thought I might. We have a couple other things I want to get to. Um, can we go over the hour a few minutes? Is that going to be okay sure. with you, Ryan? Okay. Um, I should have known to build a little more time in for this conversation. Um, you have a piece that you published with uh, Rebecca Elliott and the title is Disasters, Continuity, and the Pathological Normal. It appeared in Sociologica, and um, it's a really brilliant piece, and people should should check it out. And um, I'm just going to read one, one line from it. You write, a critical approach, you're talking about disasters here, a critical approach should not only reexamine what disasters are, it should also inquire into what they do in the social world, what is reproduced, or preserved through them. So in this piece, you're going, you were just talking, setting it up a moment ago, the fascination with the normal mm-hmm. and the way that the concepts of normal interact with the concept of disaster, which is supposed to be a profound disruption, a discontinuity, a tear mm-hmm. in the fabric. So you and Rebecca really um, try to problematize this and show the implications for sociology mm-hmm. in the piece. Say a little bit more about where you land on this problem. And I and I particularly like, and we'll start using this idea of the pathological normal, but it's, it sounds pretty bad, honestly, that our norms are, are uh, not only moving in a viral way, but they make us sick. So the basic idea is that sociology and a lot of other disciplines, it's not, not to single out sociology, it's just where I live, um, have thought about disaster as a sort of thing that collides with normal social life and disrupts it. And um, we have to think about disaster as a sort of suspect terrain in the landscape of the social world, that it intrudes into the normal and we are able to withstand the trouble or not, and then we move past it. But what this overlooks and the, the problem with this is that and particularly as we get into the a 21st century in which we're confronted with continuous sets of overlapping disasters. Um, here we are sitting, talking uh, on COVID calls here uh, in the middle of a pandemic while, you know, a giant geopolitical crisis is, is unfolding. Uh, a wildfire season is going to start up in the West Coast soon, and it's going to be hurricane season soon. Um, and, you know, we're in this state of constant disruption and constant disaster. And that really needs to make you think, what is the point of having the idea of disaster if it's going if we're not going to think about the way in which disasters are produced, which is they're produced by uh, the same process of social reproduction that um, produces society anew every day when we wake up, right? The same, um, you know, the, the process that builds, uh, you know, a city of, of 8 million people on the coastline is a process that leaves it vulnerable to hurricanes, for example. Um, the fact that uh, that this coronavirus spread very quickly around the world has as much to do with the nature of, um, of interconnections and global trade now uh, as it does with anything inherent about the transmissibility of this virus. Um, and so the, the point is to think about disaster as a part of the normal process. It's it's sometimes an expression of normal social life and not an intrusion into normal social life. And the way that we determine what is or what is not a disaster, what are the boundaries of what we're gonna decide is a disaster or what isn't a disaster, is its own sort of cultural and political process. To say that, some, that a disaster you know, extends this far and no further, when people are still suffering uh, and when people, uh, you know, are still um, hurt by it uh, and will continue to be hurt by it, that's a political act. And in fact, we're seeing that now when we talk about the exit from the pandemic, Um, you know, do we have high risk uh, or not? Well, it sort of depends on 
on your vulnerability, right? And so if the if we're going to declare the pandemic over in certain parts of this country or some parts of the planet, um, that's an act saying that it's okay for certain people to get sick and not others. That's what um, that's what we mean in critical disaster studies by saying um, uh, that you know disaster is a is a construct that that determines the sort of acceptable level uh, and dimensions of suffering in society. Let me let me go a little further with this, and and so I like the direction you're going here, obviously. But I I do wrestle with the question then if, if we lose the concept. So let me state it this way: if everything is a disaster, depending mm-hmm. on the perspective of time and the person you're asking, mm-hmm. um, then what good is the concept at all? And and then we just we just throw it out. And that everything is a disaster. I mean, where, how do we do any kind of boundary setting mm-hmm. if we open it up to this broad sort of? So you can say, well, everything in capitalism is in late capitalism. It is a disaster, whether you're aware of it or not. I was talking with Bo Jacobs yesterday. He's talking about the global hibakusha. We're all exposed to radiation. Mm-hmm. If you t- expand your time frame to a thousand years, this disaster of unimaginable scope. So it, we're just all living in disaster. With the, what good is the concept at that point? Mm-hmm. So I'm not a total relativist, uh, you know, in the idea that that nothing means anything. And, and since there's suffering everywhere, disasters can be everywhere. Um, I think that the importance of having so. As an academic concept, as a theoretical concept, we have to be critical about how disasters get constructed. We have to be critical about when people declare something a disaster and what are its boundaries and who suffers the most from that construction and who benefits from that construction. And that's all it means. It doesn't mean that everything is a disaster. It means that we have to be uh, aware and constantly thinking about the fact that the boundaries of a disaster are socially constructed and have effects in the social world and that we can't take it for granted to say everything was fine yesterday and then today there's a disaster. Um, We have to think more carefully about what the boundaries are. So, I'm, I, sorry, go ahead. No, no, I said in every case of the, in, of any event that we might imagine as a disaster. Yeah. Well, I'm with you on that. I mean, in, in, in that sense, that sort of social analysis that looks very closely at different institutions and different groups and says, who's defining disaster? What time parameters do they use? What does it enable? Um, and those subjectivities really show how power is expressed in, in the modern world and in the pre-modern world too, to the extent that we can, you know, get the sources and and figure that out. But we still make choices, we still write grants, we still do priority setting even as disaster analysts. And and I might be very open to the idea that um suffering out of place, as my colleague Jacob Remus would call it, uh disaster is can be perceived very different depending on the time scale you might use, but I still make choices about which ones to study and which ones not. Mm-hmm. And that bothers me. I mean, I don't know what to do with that. I mean, there's still a priority setting that goes on. So I feel like even as a field, we do reinstantiate that we're not, we're not absent from the power mm-hmm. dialogue that's going on. What do you, what do we do about that? <sighs> I'm confessing. Yeah. It's, it's, <laughs> It's it's a, a deep ethical question of how do we set priorities on what is important to know and how you can know it and w- how you're going to spend your time um, building knowledge about the world. Uh, and it, I think that there's, if it was an easy answer, I think that we would know it already. Um, and I don't really have one, but I think that it's important to... Um, It's important to build a community in that sense. Again, I think that, and maybe I just I say this because I'm a sociologist and everything is is relational. But I think that you build knowledge in a community, and you know, no one person can study everything. And of course, certainly, it's the case that we are part of the kind of political and power process of determining what is a disaster and who we look at and what kinds of things we study. Um, but I think that you do that in community and not on an individual basis. I'm really glad that you wrote this piece with Rebecca, Disasters, Continuity, and the Pathological Normal. And um, 
people should check it out. And I'm going to put the link to the title here. And so people can be sure to find it. It's open access, I believe, or it was when I checked out. Yeah, that's great. So everybody be sure to read this, this piece. I want to um, follow up on one more thing. I um, somehow missed the fact that maybe I knew that throughout the pandemic, I've known and forgotten the same thing multiple times. It's just mm -hmm. the way of my life. But you've been you've been writing a newsletter throughout mm -hmm. the Covadesi. Mm -hmm. And uh, you started it, I went back and looked, you started it on March 14th, 2020. I wonder mm -hmm. how many people, so I started COVID calls March 16th, 2020. I wonder how many people started projects over that weekend. Uh, yeah. I, I lost count of how many interesting things got started right around that, that week in 2020. You stuck with this uh, mm -hmm. for a while and continued to post. Um, and let me ask you about it. It, what did it, what was that process like for you? And I'm going to put up the link where people can find it because they're really interesting posts. They're, they, you have public health information in there. Like it's, it's, it's a resource, but it's also analytical and it's also narrative in first person. So there's a lot of different sort of things you're working on simultaneously in these posts. I found it fascinating. Thanks, Scott. Um, I, it was a strange project that I didn't, know exactly where it was going at any given moment, which is one of the reasons that there are all these sort of different genres going on within it. So I started writing this uh, Substack newsletter on, uh, I guess, the 13th or 14th of March, because as the as the pandemic was spreading around, as, as the disease was spreading around the world, I started spread uh, receiving more and more questions from friends and relatives and colleagues who knew that I had studied disaster and knew that I'd been thinking about pandemics because um, I had just finished a dissertation, uh, which was an ethnographic study of disaster risk managers in New York City. And one of the scenarios that they always planned around was uh, pandemic flu. And so I'd been thinking about this for a while. And so I would answer questions from people by text or, or talking to them uh, kind of casually as this thing was approaching. Um, and at a certain point, I, I, I uh, it occurred to me that it was going to hit the United States and hit hard and that we weren't going to be prepared for it. And that uh, I put up a like a post on Instagram asking if it would be helpful for me to make a newsletter, like an email newsletter that people could, where I could answer questions kind of en masse to everybody. And it was just supposed to be something for friends and family, essentially, at first. And I expected everyone to say, like, no, the last thing we need in the world is one more Substack newsletter. Um, and uh, but to my surprise, you know, overwhelmingly, people said that they wanted this. Um, and so I started writing it and I very quickly it got out of my personal social network and people started reading it outside of people that I knew. Um, and so it became came a sort of therapy for me to be able to write down the things that I was hearing about in my research and seeing in the world around me and um, a way to make the world make sense. I think for people who I were close to me and who wanted to read this newsletter and had a sense that uh, I could answer questions for them. Um, and I tried to be extremely um careful in the information that I did share because I didn't want the responsibility of like people relying on me as a non-epidemiologist for um, you know, public health information. And so I tried to be extremely narrow in what kinds of claims I could make or, you know, um, always putting, pointing people to direct sources and not relying on me. Um, but it was also fascinating to kind of uh, be able to offer my expertise as a disaster sociologist to help people make sense of the pandemic as a broader event and not just as a threat in their own lives, um, as something that they were facing. Um, and so it was a fascinating project to to do. And I feel like I met a lot of people through it, like uh, readers who would write to me, um, who I always appreciated hearing from and talking to. It was a fascinating project. I really enjoyed doing it. And I, I think that I finally stopped doing it in I guess the last post was in December uh, because I felt like it was, a, I didn't have new things to say, I think ultimately um, about this uh, pandemic. And 
um, I didn't want it to be a burden that I kept carrying. I just wanted to be able to say, I've done this project. Uh, it seemed like I was at a natural ending point and the pandemic was something that was no longer an acute event, but just something that was all around us, like a sort of mist um, that was a feature of our everyday lives, but not something that um, seemed so overwhelming anymore. And so that's why I ended up stopping it for now. So, yeah, I think there you seem to leave the door open a little bit in the in the last one that you wrote, and then you um, did sixty of these, sixty regular ones, and um, it got me thinking about the um, you know blogs have a bad rap, just mm -hmm. like podcasts have a bad rap. Everybody who wake up in the morning, they're like, you know what? I like French bread. I'm going to do a podcast on French bread. I'm going to see if anybody else there likes French, you know, and there's a bit of that. And, but, you know, in a, in a world before COVID, when we could talk about different things on a daily basis, I sort of look back at that fondly. I'm like, oh, people used to write blogs about stuff that happened in their daily lives. Yeah. People used to do podcasts about things that happened just to them you know, uh, you know, without a didn't have to have a central narrative that COVID, certainly for those of us who re, who study disasters, has has become a total narrative for this time. But that also has meant we've had some really great um, newsletters, blogs, Substack publications, which are, as you described, the, the multiple genres engaged at one time. I think of Sam Montano's newsletter, Colleen Haggerty's newsletter. I'm, I've been trying to come up with her name for a second. The political scientist who writes this very widely read newsletter. The huh. um, I can't remember her name either, but I know, I know exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> um, uh -huh. um, one thing I worry about with these is we'll lose them. Mm -hmm. I mean, they're in digital space. This is a classic problem anyway. I'm, this is my historian side coming out. Like, mm -hmm. They're not any better preserved on paper necessarily, but I would like to see them compiled somehow, somewhere. Mm -hmm. I guess that's my way of saying, I hope you'll publish these because I, I worry we lose these. This is the stuff. This is what we need to try to get a handle, not only on what the, the disaster was, but on how you were perceiving it differently across time. Because yeah. the scope, the temporal scope of this thing is weird. Yeah. Yeah, I hope that people do preserve these. And I think that we'll see an archiving project at a certain point. Um, it is especially difficult to uh, preserve this kind of stuff digitally um, because of, you know, link rot. And even, you know, I, I tried to, because of the nature of this newsletter, I did an enormous amount of linking. And Sam Montano is, is at, like a genius at this too. So he does it uh, really well too. Um, and but, you know, even now you'll go back and, and a lot of these links no longer function. And so the document itself starts to degrade, even if you have it, uh, because the, right. the information it connects to on the Web doesn't exist anymore or gets moved around or publications come and go. So there's one line. This is my last question for you. There's one line in your 60th entry of the Covadesi. And in it, you say, um, wherever you look. It seems we're locked in a reflexively accelerating race to solve new problems caused by our previous solutions. Mm -hmm. That one brought me up short. It, I think I find myself trying to say some version of that a lot, but I don't think I've ever said it that economically. And so my question to you is, as, as COVID moves into this next phase, what new problems are we making? I think that the problems that we're making are how to sustain life on a radically destabilized planet. And I think this is this line that I was thinking of, that I that you just read is something that I was thinking about as I was working on this piece with Rebecca Elliott on the pathological normal. Um and to stop us from thinking about discrete disasters as events that come and go, but as part of one core problem, which is that, you know, human, human society, global society uh, is really fragile and rests on a lot of things going right all of the time. Um, and uh, we come to depend on infrastructure and on institutions functioning well 
uh, in a world that is always falling apart and that is always generating its own accidents and problems. And so in a sense, you know, the problems that we create with COVID are the problems that we would create anyway, right? I mean, you know, even, even if, um, and again, even if we solve global warming, right? So global warming is this existential threat. And even if it were to be the case that we, you know, perfect carbon capture and uh, go to carbon neutral uh, energy production tomorrow, some other crisis would emerge because that's the nature of human technical society that we live in this um, we're like self-domesticated, you know, we, we, um, uh, depend on the technological world around us functioning in order to feed ourselves. Right. Um, so that to me is the big problem, um, is that we keep having new problems that get solved, but then the fact that we have generated all this infrastructure to solve our last problem becomes vulnerable to failure itself and producing all sorts of weird unintended consequences that then we have to deal with again. So that I think is the big problem. And that's to me, again, why we have to think about disasters differently, because it's not as if disasters come from the outside. They're coming from inside the house, as we used to say in the 90s, like it's coming from our own process of social reproduction. Just want to remind everybody you've been listening to COVID calls and you can usually catch COVID calls live at 7 p.m. Eastern time. Although these days, um, please keep up with my Twitter feed at US of Disaster because we have COVID calls running kind of around the clock these days. Uh, I want to thank my guest, Ryan Hagen. Great conversation. I always learn a lot in conversation with you and this oral history project that you've got going. Good luck with the next wave of it and can't wait to see those publications. Ryan, it's great to be with you. Thanks for coming on. Thank you so much for having me, Scott. It's really a pleasure to be a part of this. Stay healthy, everyone. We'll see you next time on COVID Calls. 